Hey everyone, welcome back to The Pod and the Pendulum, the podcast covering every single horror movie franchise. Well, maybe not every... I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, probably not getting to Leprechaun. Probably not. So uh, just throwing that out there. Covering every horror movie podcast, we feel like covering one movie in one episode at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Snooney, and joined once again by my co-host, Lindsay Travis. Lindsay, how are we doing this evening? We're good. We're, we're, we're good. I feel like I say the same thing. I feel like I've been Mm -hmm. saying we're well into festival season for like Mm -hmm. months. For months. Yes. (laughs) It has always been. It's like 1984. Like we have always been in festival season. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But um is Fantasia wrapping up? Is it close Fantasia to the is end? Wrapping up. It is finishing today as we're recording, I mm-hmm. believe. Um, and then now we're just, you know, jamming everybody in before TIFF. But it's exciting mm-hmm. times. Candyman just came out. Or well, I guess yeah, by the time this comes up, Candyman yep. will have just come out. Um, so lots of lots of good yep. chatter. Yes, and you have a fantastic review of Candyman. Thanks, I hope so. Retweeted right now. And yeah. it looks like I know you're very positive on it. Um, it looks like the reviews are a bit mixed. Yeah. It's it looks... one of those movies that's inspiring a lot of conversation on all sides right now. Yeah, I think like as I was digesting it before I wrote my review, I had like a few moments where I considered things that I was like, I think these are gonna be things that will get mentioned in reviews and I'm not gonna do it, or maybe I should, and like really spent like as much time as I could kind of dwelling on a few factors that I definitely saw come up in other reviews that handled mm-hmm. it much better than I would have. So I'm like very glad that they exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm looking forward to checking it out later okay. this week. And it eventually, is. eventually that will be a series that we talk about. So okay. it's, yeah. doing that. it'll be on the books. Um, but we are here tonight to put the bow for now on the long running conjuring series. This is now, I think the seventh movie in the series. It is, officially the newest movie we've ever covered since it came out this yeah it's very new yeah which is weird for us you know obviously we're not a show that typically covers new movies um and we have i think very divergent opinions on this one we Um, do which i think that like we've probably said throughout a lot of times so yeah so I would we have a guest this week we have a phenomenal guest a first timer on the show and Lindsay, do you mind taking it away and introducing our guest? It would be my pleasure. I do not mind at all. I brought in a ringer tonight, everyone. Okay. I was Mike's like, oh, I'm not I'm not sure about this movie. I was like, not only am I gonna bring someone who is like who likes the movie and will convince you, she also knows everything about this movie, everything about this franchise, and most franchises, horror franchises specifically. And she's gonna like change everyone's mind, perhaps, who who might need a mind change. But Let's introduce her. <laughs> She's a newly minted head critic and chief content creator at Bloody Disgusting. She's also the host of the Bloody Disgusting podcast with the lovely Zena. She's got her name in all your favorite horror publications. Uh, Meg Navarro is here. Everyone, 
Hello. Meg, how are you? Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm really thrilled to have you. I, like I said, there's a few reasons that we'll dig into later, which is uh, a big part of why Meg's here. Um, but yeah, every time I was like, I think about Warren Cannon, I'm always like, I want to yell about it with Megan. So I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> so here we are. Um, but yeah, so one of the first things we do on the show is we always talk about our first experience with the film. Um, again, it was pretty recent. Like, um, tell us about your first experience watching The Conjuring Part 3. Part three. It's like so recent that it's so it weird. Like it's not, yeah, it's not this uh, super exciting story of discovery of childhood. No, I I watched it um, for work. So, you know, first I did the junket and watched the first 10 minutes and had to do roundtable interviews for that. And then I got to see the movie for a review. So I watched it at home, which is the first time that... I have not seen like really The Conjuring because like the first two I've seen in theaters. So I kind of missed that experience of seeing it with the crowd, but I still enjoyed it regardless. So yeah, it was very dull. That's how I watched it, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. My, my answer is exactly the same. I didn't do it for the press junket, but yeah, also I watched it for work at home. Yeah. Um, and it was the first, I think in the whole franchise that I didn't see in theaters. So I was like, Oh, sad. Yeah. Um, but it was still like the closest thing to like, theater experience (laughs) I tried my best (laughs) I made popcorn you know yeah for me it was obviously HBO Max released it with what they're doing uh and I'm going to say unfortunately not doing after 2021 in that they are the Warner Brothers is taking their theatrical slate and they are debuting it uh, alongside a debut on HBO Max for the first 30 days I am fortunate. I think I'm more fortunate than a lot in that I used to work in AV. So I kind of know what stuff should cost and also what you can get very good secondhand and have put together like in a part of the unfinished basement, put like my own theater in it and was able to enjoy this. on like a hundred inch projected image. Um, So it got close to the theatrical experience. I, hired my daughter for five bucks to sit in front of me and put her cell phone on um <laughs> and we just dumped some soda under my feet so i would get the full, the full <laughs> monty um, no, no cell phones so, but what's interesting is like my i just like when watching this movie got this pit in my stomach like i do i think the first conjuring is a modern classic and i know that it took me three attempts to start and finish the conjuring two, but that was not a fault of the movie. It was just when I happened to put it on and I'm like, Ooh, this one might even be better than the first conjuring movie. And I just like, couldn't get into this one. Um, and then I rewatched it while on vacation. I'm like, I should give it a second watch before it goes away. And I had that same feeling. I'm like, I just, I maybe even liked it less knowing what was coming. Um, so I'm, but that being said, I'm, and I'll say my reasons for like throughout the show, I'm kind of more interested in hearing why you two really enjoy this movie for a couple of reasons. Number one, talking about movies is just fun. Um, even when you don't love a movie and hearing why other people really appreciate a piece of art, whether it's music, whether it's a piece of art, whether it's film, is fascinating because you can come away from that conversation going, Oh, I get it a little bit more. Um, the other thing 
and I didn't know this when it was going on. Like Meg, you were actually hosting the Conjuring watch party last night that was going on on Twitter. Um, and I was not watching the movie, but like throughout the movie or throughout that time, like so many good people were popping up in their feed and giving like their thoughts on the movie. Um, and it was just this like relentlessly positive experience. And I mean yeah. that in a good way. Like I'm not someone that is like, Oh, let people enjoy things and never critique anything. Oh yeah, no. But I do think that there's something to be said about, Hey, this is bringing a lot of people, a lot of happiness and joy right now. And much like CM Punk's debut in AEW, um, we've had such a year where so much has gone wrong that anything that can bring that many people together has something good going for it. Yeah, I'll buy that. Yeah. Yeah. So this will be one where I think I probably like facilitate more than speak. I think this is probably the most you'll hear me speak all episode. Um, <laughs> I get to be the interviewer. The I'll get to be like kind of the facilitator. Yeah. So articulate so, and well-spoken. So. Oh, thank you. Don't worry. And, and my mom <laughs> says I'm handsome. Uh, <laughs> actually, my mom is really angry at me because I used her condo in Maine this past weekend and I turned on the TV and changed the input. Oh. Didn't realize I had done that. <laughs> and I got a call her husband called me last night at like nine o'clock and I'm like, is everything okay? Cause when yeah. he never calls me anyway, I thought she had a heart attack. Oh, it's no. like, oh, she couldn't figure out the TV in Maine and I couldn't walk her through it. Um, so I'm worried she'll never let me use the condo again. <laughs> well, the time's <laughs> over for you. Yeah. Um, I feel so bad. Um, but Lindsay, you've done a phenomenal job kind of laying out the case of this case. So do you mind talking a little bit about the real story of Arnie Johnson and how it ties into this movie? Yeah. So I, I like thought about it a lot. I was like, you know, it's an interesting enough story to like touch upon, but I do obviously feel like, um, these movies lean on reality and like, we all know what we're watching. Do you know what I mean? Like we've all seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre and we all know what we're watching based on a true story. So I like try not to like, Anyway, but it's still, like, fun to, like, chat about the real story. So, Artie Johnson, real guy. Um, so, yeah, in the grand tradition of basically using real cases for their stories, this one focuses on Artie Johnson. Uh, in the movie, uh, he lives with his girlfriend, which is also what apparently happened in real life. He lives with his girlfriend and family in a boarding house, and he essentially stabbed his landlord to death and was charged with murder. Um, so, Christy Puchko, who also uh, was at Pajiba uh, with me, um, she said IGN, a couple other places. Anyway, she wrote a really cool um, article about it in Mental Floss, basically just breaking down the um, the real story of Arnie. So I basically just have a couple of quotes from there that I thought were kind of interesting, just really quickly. So in uh, early 1981, um, a 19-year-old arborist named Arnie Cheyenne Johnson and a 26-year-old girlfriend, Debbie, were living in an apartment uh, above some kennels. Uh, They lived with their landlord, a 40-year-old named Alan Bono. And on February 16th, 1981, they were uh, hanging out at home, listening to music, heavy drinking. um, And essentially, his girlfriend got everyone out of there, tried to get everyone out of the party because there was like a little bit of alcohol and everyone was young. And it sparked this big fight between Arnie and the landlord. And uh, Arnie just stabbed Bono. Bono? Bono? I don't know. Uh, the landlord, four or five times with a five-inch pocket knife. Um, So it was the first homicide in the town. 
Um, although the police apparently said that it was not an unusual, a not an unusual crime where they were. Um, and basically Arnie said that it was like, it couldn't just be a simple murder. He like made it fantastical. And the reason was because he basically said that like, like he said a quote, oh my gosh, let me find it. Arnie had a quote that is what is used in the movie where he basically said, oh, he says, I think I hurt someone. Um, And he was kind of in this like fugue state when the police picked him up, which is how we see it depicted in the movie. Um, But yeah, what happened was uh, Lorraine Warren uh, called the Brookfield police and said it was a demon. So they actually were the ones who instigated the contact. Um, And Johnson didn't actually say the devil made him do it. He just claimed that he didn't remember the stabbing. Um, and yeah, basically he, the whole thing is that apparently in reality, the Warrens came up with this defense and it's alleged that it was like, they wanted to like capitalize off of the fame of this case, dive into it, get a lot of media attention by, you know, saying that this kid, like the devil made you do it. Right. And kind of do that. So that's pretty much where I will end talking about the real life Warrens because this movie does a lot of things differently. First of all, whether or not, you know, you believe the Warrens, um, there's that piece. The other piece is that like from there, the movie really converges from the reality to the point that we're now getting a story about demons and the occultist and things like that, which are not related to the real story. Basically right. Arnie Johnson killed somebody. Doesn't remember doing it. The Warren showed up to help defend him. And that's pretty much where yeah. it ends. What's <laughs> interesting looking at the real case is Arnie Johnson went to, went in front of the judge and his lawyer said, uh, this is a case of demonic possession, at which point the judge looked at the lawyer and Arnie Johnson and said, that's not a thing. You need to come back with an actual defense or just plead guilty, which is at that point, they're like, OK, we'll come back with a real defense. And that was like end yeah. of story. Um, and what here is like, so I guess what I'm I'm interested in hearing from both of you, because Lindsay, I think you kind of put like a little you kind of touched on it. You said, like, look, when you watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it says, like, inspired by real events. Uh, And you're getting, like, Toby Hooper hearing from, like, his grandmother's friend about Ed Gein in Wisconsin. Um, (laughs) And you can say, sure, inspired by in that, like, ooh, what a cool idea. Let's make a totally fictional story. This, you actually have, like, historical figures. Like, the Warrens are real people. Uh, Arnie Johnson was a real human being who actually killed another real human being. Um, and then you get this fantastical telling of it. What sort of feelings towards like any responsibility should there be more so than maybe the first two conjuring movies where there are no victims and this one, there is actually a real victim who does get murdered. Yeah. I think, I think we talked about like, this is one of the first, aside from the deaths and the spinoffs, I think this is the first death in the conjuring universe. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, which is wild. There is not a body count in these movies, but let's see, <laughs> until this one, until this one, there's like deaths in Annabelle, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think that there's obviously, I think it really depends. I mean, if you're, you know, the person, if you're Arnie, if you're the family of the deceased, you know, how are you feeling about this movie? Probably not great. <laughs> um, in reality, I mean, I'm sure there actually were a few conversations about likeness, uh, not likeness rights, but like name rights. And um, there were some issues about like the story and who owned it, which authors and the Warrens and who owned their names and things like mm-hmm. that. So 
uh, it has been contemplated. I don't know. I think that like nothing in these movies purports to be reality. Um, so I think that like, just because it says like inspired by true events, it doesn't really like to me, like no one watches these movies. It's like, that's what really happened. And these movies know that like they're Mm -hmm. over the top. It's not the same thing as making like, I don't know. It's not the same thing as like making a movie that you're claiming is biographical. It It doesn't Um, claim to be a biopic. Yeah. So like, I think there's a line. I think if someone was like, Hey, this is in poor taste, I wouldn't fight with them about it, but I don't think it's in poor taste. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you said it earlier where you kind of compared it to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which definitely draws from like Ed Gein. So yeah, this is this is not the same thing, even though it draws inspiration. To me, the Warrens are nothing. This is a fantastical, likable, fictional Warren that is nothing like reality. And I think you just kind of have to accept that. Or you don't, and then you're not a fan of The Conjuring. So, um, But I also think that that's why... You know, I know Lindsay for sure had talked about before expecting like this courtroom drama, but I think that's specifically why it's not a courtroom drama is that it's much safer to stick with the fantasy and have the Warrens go on this kind of road trip, you know, and that way you are still paying like respectfully skirting around the true victims while, you know, you've you've got a horror movie. That's a really good point about the courtroom thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's because it's interesting, especially how this one wraps up. Like you think like, oh, they've defeated the demon. Like, spoiler, sorry. Um, Like the Warrens win in the end. Um, And then it goes back to the court and you just see him stand up and it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, this dude went to prison for five years. And it's like, (laughs) womp, womp, sad trampoline. But they they also kind of set that up, too. You know, Mm -hmm. like they can't deviate that far, you know, since it is closer to an actual like legal case. But they do early on establish like the best you can do is keep them from the death penalty. Mm -hmm. That's the the win. That's why we're focusing on, you know, the Warrens here. And they do that in a scene that has one of the best intentional laughs, I think, of the whole series. Like, really, they're like, if you can convince me, and then it cuts immediately to the court again. Oh, yeah. Like, demons! Yeah, that made me laugh. That was was really good. I will say that that was really good. Um, So I know we typically dive into a little bit into the background and production of the films a little bit and there are some things here as well as um just some of the connective tissue uh for the conjuring three how it kind of connects to the other films in the series um so Lindsay, you did a lot you did the legwork on this take it away yeah i mean like just on production they shot it in georgia oh my goodness there's something flying on my screen that is a nightmare I thought it was like my cursor. It's fine. I'm a pro. Um, oh my god. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they, hi, we're back. It's not a demon. And not we're a back. bug flowing around my screen. Okay. Uh, they shot this movie in Georgia. Um, and yeah, leading up to it, basically 2017, they announced uh, that there was a third installment in development. Like, of course, these movies are kicking butt. We want more Warrens. We got Annabelle comes home, and it was great. But there, it was like Warrens light. You know, we wanted more. Um, so initially, they had The Conjuring 2 writer, um, co-writer, David Leslie Johnson McGoldrick, McGoldrick hired to write the screenplay um, in 2017. Uh, Juan said that the filmmakers had been working hard on The Conjuring 3. 
Um, yeah, by, let's see, around 2018, they announced the movie um, and that it would not be directed by Juan. So Juan was not at the helm for this one. Instead, it would be directed by The Curse of La Llorona director Michael Chavez. Um, and Juan said that he was impressed with him working on him, working with him on The Curse. Um, and so they kind of chatted uh, with Bloody Disgusting uh, about some plot details um, and said, I think it's the first time in America's history where the defendant used possessions as a reason as an excuse. Um, and then in October 2019, Joseph Bashira, who composed the score for The Conjuring, Annabelle and The Conjuring 2, Curse of La Llorona and Annabelle Comes Home, uh, was confirmed to be returning. So yeah, and then they were like, we're bringing out The Devil Made Me Do It. Um, yeah, so they shot it in Georgia. There were a few delays in reshoots. Uh, they had to accommodate the pandemic. And they actually made a lot of changes. And I think it'll be fun. We'll have a pretty fun conversation because a lot of stuff came out of the uh, Twitter uh, watch party last night um, about the reshoots and kind of why and what happened. Um, but yeah, as a result of a few changes, one that I thought was cool, a character played by Davis Osborne, who would have been a secondary antagonist, was removed and instead he plays a hospital patient. Um, and then the role of the priest played by John Noble was actually expanded significantly. So those are a few of the big changes. And then, um, yeah, what were, there were lots of changes, right? There were like, there was a couple shots of the Warrens. Um, there was like something about separating them. And I'm wondering if that was the, like under the house scene. He, yeah, they, the, I guess the climax was them together, but he thought it would be more interesting to separate them. Oh, it was the climax. I feel like that's a great choice because, um, that does so much heavy lifting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Every time I like hear of a reshoot, I always think like how, like you think like how much do you reshoot? Like how, how much are you like changing about your movie? Um, and it just seems like kind of unfathomable to me. And then to think that they like change that climax, like so much happens where Lorraine is alone and like so much happens where Ed shows up that like. When, so you mentioned that some of it was filmed during the pandemic and during lockdown when most productions went on halt. Mm-hmm. Did, is that the reason? I mean, aside from trying to make it more dramatic, is that the reason why they are separated so much maybe during the last 20 minutes or so? Like, is there any word on like what actually was shot during the pandemic versus what had been done before? That I don't know, but he did, he did say in the Twitter watch party that it was strictly for dramatics that he does because they were supposed to be together, which probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense given, you know, the, the way that the curse is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like I can't imagine it being any other way. Like, so, like, presumably everybody who's here has seen the movie. Um, But long story short, the Warrens, so the Warrens are investigating this curse to kind of see what happened, why Arnie was possessed and committed a murder. And they uncover this cult that we'll chat about, but they basically uncover this plot uh, via the priest who we mentioned, played by John Noble, um, or I guess he's like a retired priest. Um, And... He kind of chats about this like occultist who uh, has to fulfill three um, like duties. And it's basically coming up with three specific people who are going to commit a murder. And Arnie is one of them. Arnie is the second one. And when they're investigating, they stumble across the first one, the lover. Arnie is second. And then they're basically trying to stop her from letting the third one happen. And ultimately she marks Ed Warren to be the third victim the third like killer who will be killed 
It's like the lover, the child, and the man of God, which yes. I'm guessing is like the bastardized, you know, devilish version of the son and the Holy Ghost. Yes, yes. Yeah, so, right, yeah, so it's the lover, yeah, the child, and then, woo, the man of God, Ed Warren, as we all know, <laughs> um, as we all know about the real Ed Warren, um, yeah, so they get, like, in too deep, and ultimately, like, Ed has to be, quote, possessed in one way or another to commit this murder and then die himself, um, and so I feel like the whole climax really relies on him being kind of on his own while that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Until love finds a way. Love finds a way. Love finds a way. Uh, um, just like life, love finds a way. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And the, I guess the reason I'm interested about what was shot during the pandemic versus 2019 or how much of it was in the can is my biggest issue with this movie is that it focuses almost exclusively on the Warrens. At least I feel like it does when compared to the first two Conjuring movies. Like, I get that the Warrens are the selling point. I wouldn't say, well, they need to be put on the back burner or be not a focus of the movie. Like, I get people are coming back to see um, two very strong performances by Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson, and that is the appeal. And, like, their relationship is the appeal as well. Like, the way they play off of one another and the obvious love that they on-screen warns have for one another comes across. I would argue the counter to that, though, is that like what makes The Conjuring 1 and The Conjuring 2 so interesting is you get just as equal a focus on the Perone family. Like You really feel for e- each of those children. You get a real feel for who they are. You get a real sense of danger. I know that I said this like in the when we talked about the first Conjuring movie. Um, Ron Livingstone, like playing the kind of clueless dad who always walks in on the tail end of things going, well, what's going on here? You know, just like you get a feel for the bind he's in. You get a feel for why, because of financial straits, they can't just up and leave and say like, well, we're just going to make our way out. They're like, no, everything is tied into it. And you're equally invested. You're invested in the Warrens because you want to see the Warrens help the Perone family. In The Conjuring 2, the Hodgson fan, the Hodgson family, you feel for those two little girls that are in there. Like you feel for the single mom whose partner is up and left her, who lives in a tenement house, who gave up smoking so she could buy her kid biscuits. You're like, I want to see this family become okay afterwards. You know, I want them to be okay. And I want the Warrens to be able to help them. Well, if they can't, will someone please help them? Or listen to them. And I think that's part of what makes the first two films work so well. Didn't get that in this movie. Like, I don't... And maybe I'm missing something. If someone wants to tell me, no, like, they're just as fully developed, like, I will listen to that argument. I don't ever get a feeling of of who Arnie Johnson really is. You get, like, the super cornball scene when, like, the little boy at the beginning is like, when are you going to marry my sister? And I'm like... All right, dude, you're eight. You slow your old kid. I'm not buying. I'm not buying this. So this cute. Point. Yeah. The the know. scene that scene is kind of yeah, it's a little cheese ball, but uh, I think they give you tiny moments. And the problem is they one they they have to skirt around the true crime of it all. 
so you don't spend as much because to me this movie is more like what if uh the warrens were in an x-files episode sure and they are going through and i love that but to, mm-hmm. to answer like your point you get smaller moments you don't get as much time yeah. but like the scene that i love with julian hillard uh little young david glatzel is when he is in the prison talking to Arnie and he's acknowledging that he recalls everything that happens. And Mm -hmm. he gives this monologue where he's so wise beyond his years. And that resonated with me personally. Like I can see Mm -hmm. if it won't work for everybody, but for me, that was a huge character building moment that was way better than this. When you marry my sis, Mm -hmm. like he doesn't care. Um, I think that some of those tiny minute scenes before he really got super like hallucinogenic and possessed and you know like where they're talking in bed and dreaming of plans to go away it's so subtle but it's also effective character building for me like you know you have to be okay with with the abbreviated there's death there but it's just in the grand scheme of things seems very small Mm -hmm. yeah I agree with you on that. Like, I love that scene that you mentioned with Julian Hilliard. Um, I think that he is really the center. Like, there's a reason why the rest of the cast, no disrespect to them at all, but they're, like, pretty vanilla compared to him. Like, he's the show stealer, mm-hmm. and there's a reason. And there's a reason his waterbed moment was in the trailer. And, like, right. there's a reason you're paying attention to him. He's the charm. He's the charisma. And he brings all of that. Um, and then I think... Um, with respect to like whether or not the Warrens are like too focused, I think at the end of the day, like this is a third installment. Right. And the first two are really different, but they're both haunted house movies. Yes. The first one is pretty straight up, but it's a haunted house movie. And then the second one is a haunted house movie with um, new characters. Like Valak is yeah. going to become a big deal. Um, I think when you do the third, like I don't want another haunting of whatever. Right. Like Absolutely. I think at that point you got to like go for broken away. Like, Okay, mm-hmm. it's not the final installment in a trilogy necessarily because it is a franchise at this point. Um, but I think you got to do something different and like that different thing may or may not work. So like obviously it didn't work for everybody. Um, but to me, I'm kind of like, yeah, like it. they had to do something different. I do think you could make the argument um, that um, it gets a little bit lost in creating its own... Uh, expanded universe like I think you can make that argument that you can kind of see the moments where they're mentioning characters and where they're talking about people shallowly because you know they're gonna have like their own moments later but that's still not something that killed it for me I still think it's fine I still think it's Mm -hmm. things that other cinematic universes do and I don't think it ever did at the expense of story like we chatted like the lover is the spinoff comic that I've been talking about on each opportunity that I can (laughs) Um, and the girls are mentioned really quickly in that scene with Lorraine in the woods. Um, it's a really short scene and it sets up the fact that it's going to be developed later in the comic. But I think if you never knew that it was going to be set up later in the comic, and if you never wanted to look at any other media again, it's, you still get enough. So I still think, I don't know. I still think it was like really effectively structured, at least in my opinion. Yeah. I hear what you're saying about going for broke and I, I'll talk about like one way or maybe ask about one way this movie does it at the outset. And I think Meg, you said it well, where you're like, yeah, there are little moments where you see things like Julian is like a tremendous child performer. Um, yes. And I think he does steal the show when he's in it. Um, but I think like there were too few moments overall, like it left me wanting more. And again, it's not that like, 
I don't want a movie about the Warrens, but it's like, I think that the, the series is at its best when it's balancing that. And I get what you're saying. Like, well, do you really want a third haunted house movie? Do something different. I'd argue that what this movie does, like it is the first one that has a body count. It has five dead bodies in it all together. You have like Bono, you have the two girls, you have the priest, and then you have the witch at the end of it. And that is like, to me, it's like, okay, now I don't want to say betrayed because that's not the right word, but I feel like it goes again. Like part of what made the conjuring work so well is like, Oh, it's not a movie about a body count. It's really a family drama that has like this haunting as a part of it overall. And I like that I can go into these movies and not necessarily like you're getting an R rating because you're scaring the shit out of people, Mm -hmm. not because like you're going to like throw dismembered corpses at the screen at that point. You're getting something that different at that point. Don't do that. I mean, the the body count, there's only one death really, that's kind of gruesome. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess you could also make a a case for whether the the past flashbacks count because they're, Mm -hmm. they're dead, but that's the past. And, you know, like Lindsay said to me that this is not about these side Mm -hmm. families that obviously resonates with you. And that's important to you. But the whole thematic arc of this is about the Warrens because you have an antagonist that is literally the perfect complement to Lorraine mm-hmm. and she is fighting herself, yeah. which doesn't quite make sense if you're going to be focusing on another family. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, you know, I totally understand why it doesn't work for a lot of people, but for me, it's like the one current through line of the franchise why people loved you know annabelle comes home why people liked the first one yeah like they like the supporting characters but it is this is one of the rare horror franchises where love like a romance Mm -hmm. a romantic couple is allowed to be the lead this is a love story in disguise of a horror movie Mm -hmm. and that is like that's a rare thing and i love that they're they're like well we're not going to give you what you expect we're going to go full broke with this love story. This is a full on rom-com here. Let me ask you a question then. And I would think back to 2000, 2013 is the year the first conjuring comes out, right? Right. What I remember in the build up to that movie is Lily Tomlin's character playing the clap game in the basement. Lily, not Lily Tomlin. I'm sorry, Lily. Lily Taylor, thank you. Lily Taylor. My bad. So what? I'll edit that and make myself sound smarter. Thank you. Um, What I remember in the build-up to the first Conjuring movie is Lily Taylor playing the clap and cough game, like showing that scene as the trailer and the audience losing their mind. And the Warrens were not the focus of like the original marketing. Does Does it feel like audiences grabbed on to the warrants because again i think the portrayals of them are so strong that once like that movie hit and you realize like a big part of the reason why this movie works so well is like people are really attracted to the warrants that they became more of a focus going forward Mm, i don't i wouldn't think i don't think so i kind of do okay yeah, I mean, like, I, obviously, the scares is the big pull, like the best, by yeah. far the big pull. But 
Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga's chemistry, I think for sure became it's it's the same thing as um you know Lynn Shay with Insidious. That's what I was thinking mm-hmm. is like Lynn Shay coming off of Insidious. Yeah, that, yeah, it's yeah. it's like mm-hmm. somehow she was a side character, but she became the franchise de facto. And I mean, I think that they the kind of plan was always that they were going to be some kind of center point to the Conjuring because yeah. it's pulling from their case files. But it's just, it has to do with, like, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. I mean, they know their characters ridiculously well to the point where, you know, from Annabelle Comes Home and probably even before that, like, James Wan was going to step away from Conjuring 2. He was not going to direct Conjuring 2. And it was Vera that was like, yeah, we can talk him into it. And she thought she was going to do it again for round three. And that did not happen. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't mean that he wasn't heavily involved. He... He was heavily involved, um, but yeah, he he was done as of like the first one. Um, but you know, you look at their outfits; they're choosing their outfits, and their outfits complement each other. Like this, this series is really now theirs. It's like it's it's theirs to me as much as it is people consider it to be James Wan's. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. When I was saying my no was more that like I think the movie always knew it was about the Warrens. Because, like, I feel like um, Lily Taylor's character um, and um, Ron Livingston's character, like, they're memorable actors who do a memorable job, and I, like, don't remember them at all. <laughs> like, I think, yeah. Ron Livingston's barely in it, really. He's not. Like, it. he has a few gags. Like, like Lily obviously has more to do because she gets her, like, big exorcism moment mm-hmm. where it's not even like it's her, but it's also not so she gets a little bit more to do. But yeah, I feel like it's always been a Warren story. Um, but of course, like James Wan coming off Insidious, the guy brought the jump scare back to the mainstream. He like crafted it, perfected it, and made it the the thing with Insidious. So like, of course, he's going to craft the perfect jump scare for his next movie. And that's going to be in the marketing. Mm-hmm. And like, that was like, that was... It was a James Wan movie, right. not a Lily movie. Lily Taylor right. movie. But, but even when you look at, aside from that, like the poster art is the tree and the noose coming from it. And in the second movie, it's like the little girl and it's the room with all the upside down corpses. And this movie, like the poster art is like an extreme close up. Like I think, Meg, you put it perfectly when you're like, this is the X-Files of the mm-hmm. Conjuring movies. It If you took out Wilson and Farmiga, on the poster mm-hmm. and you put in Mulder and Scully, you would not, it would be perfect. Like it is the, and it even looks like yeah. an X-Files type <laughs> shot. Like it's, it's great. Um, and that's why I'm wondering if it's like almost a happy accident, like audiences loved. And I think part of it is like the idea of this real life Ghostbusters team is like really, even though they're hucksters, um, yeah. <laughs> they are hucksters the appeal of it is still there. Like you definitely want to believe or you want, I know they're hucksters and I still want to buy into it. I want to find some little thing to grab onto. And I, I do feel like with this particular movie, the backlash against the Warrens was stronger in for the conjuring three. Like there was a lot of, for the folks that don't love that to me or to the too far to the other side, uh, where it was like, well, these people are, you know, terrible human beings. They're awful. Why do we keep having these characters as movies where from everything I've read, their contemporaries say, you know, 
they were nice people. They weren't awful to anyone, but Ed in particular was always kind of looking out to see like, how can we make a buck on this? And Lorraine never walked into a house she didn't think was haunted. Mm-hmm. Like, so they were like hucksters that were ultimately harmless, but it felt like the chatter this summer around this movie in the Warrens in particular took a particularly kind of ugly tone to it. I feel like that's a whole other really like deep conversation okay. that can spiral just because I think that film discourse has been really bizarre this year mm-hmm. as far as purity goes. As far um, as what goes, and I'm sorry. purity and morality mm-hmm. has been really huge in the discourse mm-hmm. of film criticism lately. And I feel like that partly is why there's been the pushback on part three of all of them mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. from the, from the beginning. Yeah. I, yeah, I agree. This is like, I mean, we touched upon it. I think in every episode we kind of grazed the same, you know, these are fictional recreations of people. And we like touched on what we think about the morality with respect to the like backlash that happened this year. Like exactly like Meg said, probably like an hour long conversation or a four hour panel for another day. Yeah. <laughs> we won't do that. But we won't much do that. More, so. Yeah. But, but much more, um, the idea of just like, yeah, discourse changed a lot this year. Um, it will continue to change. And I'm sure we can make a lot of assessments as to why we think that is, but ultimately yeah. we're just going to keep, uh, no. I, I can speak for myself and, and that I personally don't believe in ghosts and stuff. Mm-hmm. I would love, I mean, I would love that, but I don't. So to me, like, it just seems like a harmless type scenario. It's the same thing as calling into Miss Cleo and asking her mm-hmm. to read your fortune because I, I don't believe in it. So it's mm-hmm. the same equivalent to me, yeah. which is why I'm easy. It's easier for me to disconnect from yep. who they really were because I don't, I don't believe like, in any of it. It's funny. Like I, I like do, do I like, I believe in things, not like I wouldn't fight about it. But like, yeah. you know, I have my beliefs, you know, I charged my crystals in the full moon this, you know, a couple nights ago, like mm-hmm. we all know about that, you know, I believe in certain things. Um, and uh, you believe I in say? but we chatted about it in our episode with, um, with Chewy <laughs> mm-hmm. um, about how like, I tend to gravitate towards religious horror because it is, um, I'm not Christian. And I kind of in a way like we said it's kind of like a weird almost admission of mine of like oh god what does this make me but um I gravitate towards it because I don't believe in that particular version of or like I'm not saying like I I adamantly don't believe in Christian but like I'm not a Christian those things don't get to me so I get to like almost experience them as like an external observer enjoying like horror canon so like I'm very interested in Christian demons and I'm very interested in those types of things and I guess like, yeah, I kind of get that opportunity from these movies where I'm like, I do kind of believe in, you know, the spirituality of it all. But no, I don't believe in Valak, the no, yeah. non-demon. And I get to just be like, cool, show me a haunted, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, like, convent. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> show me the sweetest, most faithful, sugary sweet couple imaginable stuck mm-hmm. in the middle of a horror franchise. Like, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's total what I fantasy. want. I, yeah. I, I like... Want- I kind yeah. of sometimes wonder if if some of the bitterness towards it is kind of like projection at our own failed relationships in terms of like my relationship. Like I, I saw this earlier this week. Someone was like, 
people that say you have a good relationship with like your blood relatives is not a real thing. It's a media creation. It's like, Ooh, I feel really bad for that person who feels <laughs> that's that. Sad to way. That, that's sad. You know, yikes. I think that we can all agree that we all just want a man who will hold or yeah, a man who will hold person. our purse. <gasps> Wait, yeah, yeah. Like I'm like, or a person that I just want a man to hold my purse while I hunt demons. And I think yeah. that that's all we can ask for. Okay. And in that same vein, yeah, like that's exactly, sure, it's super sugary sweet, but I mean, how many, when you have like any kind of romantic story, they're going to have conflict within that romance. And this refreshingly is like, this is untouchable. They have external Mm -hmm. forces to deal with, and that's also rare. So you have all of these different genre elements that are kind of rare Mm -hmm combined into one x files horror demonic franchise and mm-hmm. that's great even if it's not by one yes um i'm switching subjects because i've just been waiting this whole time to talk about one specific I, thing all right i i think it's a good time to switch up anyway so excellent okay i want to take a that demon table. did it <laughs> <laughs> i feel like i'm really loud i keep pushing my mic farther away from me i don't know what's happening um <laughs> Great. You sound fine. Okay, good. I feel it. My like, anyway, my levels. Are, Your levels are good. <laughs> are um, I want to talk about the disciples of Ram. That's yeah. where I wanted to go. Excellent, because you that, two will get into this. You can make all of the connections. So go to it. Yeah, I'll I'll preface. I am like I am I'm an Easter egg hunter. Yeah, like that. I you know. I remember, like, we talked about it when we talked about The Conjuring 2, that before even being prompted to, I was spotting Valak's in the background. Um, I am someone who loves nonsense. And I use the word nonsense because I, like, don't know what other word to use for it. But, like, the kind of thing, like, didn't you notice that Annabelle's hair met, like, that kind of baloney? I'm like, give it to me. Give me more of it. Like, it's why, like, you know, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movies are, like, things that I really love because they're Easter egg hunts that remind us. Anyway. I love nonsense, okay? And these movies, yeah, okay, like, you get it. That's, you know, these movies do it in such a, like, great way. Again, they do do the MCU thing of franchise spinoffs and setups, but they do it in a way that's not in your face, that never never cheapens the core story that you're watching. You know what I mean? Like, Annabelle might have a cameo, but there's no 20-minute Annabelle scene just (laughs) to set up an Annabelle movie. Like, that's not what they're doing. But we get a tie-in. That, like, as I was watching, I was like, wait a second, is that, is it? And then uh, Meg Navarro, our friend, uh, wrote an article basically connecting the dots. And I will leave it to you. Take it from here. (laughs) Take it from here. It's like, yeah. So it's such an easy blink or tune tune out. You could, I mean, John Noble is giving this great explanation of his past uh, that comes back in a big way later on. So it's one of those things where it's like Lindsay said, it's such a subtle thing, but he mentions studying the disciples of Ram. And that's why he's got this kind of devil's library is what they referred to it. What Shabs referred to it as um, like his artifact room. So, so cool. yeah, disciples of Ram, if that sounds familiar to you, that's because that is the cult that starts the original Annabelle movie, the first spinoff of the franchise. Uh, that is the cult that, you know, the neighbor's daughter had run away, Annabelle, and she came back with her boyfriend, this Manson-like cult 
and killed her parents and then came next door and it was a bloodbath and then she inhabited the doll and that's what starts it all and the disciples of ram also i mean the whole thing is that they are cults trying to appease this demon this ram and that is the demon that is in creation the prequel which is also the sequel is a little yeah, so, like, yeah. it's just this very subtle through line where it's, like, somehow Annabelle comes back to all of it. She's the focal point of the whole thing. She's still there. I feel like, um, in a weird way, although, yeah, I feel like in a weird way, it really reminded me of The Evil Dead. That's probably because, like, everything reminds me of The Evil Dead, but that's not actually true. But, um... <laughs> It kind of gave me, like, evil, like, you know, it gives you that, like, Necronomicon vibe, you know? You get to Mm -hmm. see the book around, and I feel like what was so fun about it for me was, like, the Necronomicon shows up, and, like, Jason goes to hell, you know? And you get to see inside those pages. And then, like, obviously Evil Dead has expanded into comic books, movies, TV show. Um, And you kind of just, like, get these, like, glances and glimmers, and, like, I've rewatched the Evil Dead franchise so many times, but I always, I'm like, when's the first time they name the Kandarian Dagger? Like, when's the first, like, I always lose track of it because I feel like it's continued, it develops so much that you're like, when's the first time they actually say those things? And I feel like that's one of those, this really took me back to that. Mm -hmm. Like, when I heard the Disciples of Ram, Cult of Ram, anything like that, it took me back to being like, when did that become a thing? Was that in the first movie? And like, I got to like experience that in a fun way. I don't know. Did any of you, did either of you feel anything like that? I don't know. I don't know if I'm like, when did I first hear that? I think you're probably a little bit more, and maybe it's just because in this instance, there's so much. I mean, the joke that, you know, Mike already mentioned with Annabelle convincing the lawyer, and then there's the cute parent nod, which means that I was so distracted by the parent mentioned that I didn't realize that he was being delivered some pretty gnarly flowers which Mm -hmm. comes into play like that's really clever foreshadowing Mm -hmm. then there's like the Elvis to like that's the Elvis joke that's like a nod to Conjuring 2 and then Shavs is layering in so many ridiculous movie references that I'm like oh there's Vertigo oh there's The Exorcist oh there's there's Nightmare on 3 4 there's literally a shot for shot recreation of the exorcist, the exorcist scene it it's is so cool. it's i will admit it is i will say that i'm like because it's so blatant you're like love it you know what shoot your shot love it um I, yeah I, I do not pick up on these references because i think a Lindsay, i think you do a much better job like going back to our episode on annabelle creation where you were picking up on like the way that blocks were laid out in certain scenes oh that was also i think things. that was also yeah that was part two Oh yeah. Okay, yeah. that's what you were you were picking up like where Valak was spelled out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Too, yeah. Tend to pick up things like that where I do not. Um, what I will say is like what I liked about I like this villain a lot, and yes, I love her. to me, like to your point of saying you're setting up like a reverse mirror image of the rain. Like you have this really, and she doesn't. Does she get a name? Like I'm looking at the IMDb, and it just says the occultist. Uh, um iris iris okay um which again thinking about you know the image your your eye okay um it sucks they kill her off because i'm watching this and i'm like we're setting up like a and i've not the first person to make this comparison but this is the this is the marvel universe of horror movie franchises where everything kind of interconnects like you're setting up a legion of doom 
at this point to mm-hmm. come if you want to continue down the road of making more movies. And then it's like, ah, it's going to get ripped away at the end. Like, ah, damn it. Come on. But I think, I mean, she is great, but at the same time, like the way that they set up not only the rules, but I think there could be more. It's not mm-hmm. like he's the only person who grew up with spending decades of his life, you know, studying the occult. There's probably tons. Mm-hmm. There's probably other neglected children that grew up mm-hmm. with the whole underground layer access to. I mean, there's probably, there's more, if there's a Disciples of Ram cult mm-hmm. that has touched even her in Connecticut, what else have they touched across the country? So sure. like, I think your, your analogy still applies. It just, you know, mm-hmm. I just found this particular villain in particular, give me one moment here. This particular villain in particular, like I think Eugenie Bondurant is the performer plays her was so good. Like it was one of the stronger for me, like one of the stronger parts in the movie. I found her like this really, fascinating villain and i wanted to see more of her um especially given that she slits her own father's throat and like john noble in the limited time he's on screen like there is an incredible sadness to his performance where he had good motives and they were corrupted for evil good good motives for doing bad things basically that that's the I actually have talked to Eugenie as well because mm-hmm. I am, I know this movie in and out pretty much uh, that she gave me interesting insight that I did not really register on with that scene. Cause to me, it's just this heartbreaking, like he's, he's sad that he basically doomed his daughter, like in choosing academics and keeping her a secret, he kind of fostered this person. And I just thought it was this horrible scene. Right. But for her, she sees this as an act of mercy. Mm. She's seeing her character doing this as an act of love because she's like, I'm cursing people. I'm cursing people to death. I didn't want that for him. So this was, you betrayed me, but I forgive you. I love you. Here's a quick end. And I'm like, I see that. And I like that. That's also why I think she works really well is because she has read so much into the script and her motivations to humanize her despite, you know, not really much in the way of dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's what's so cool about her performance is like, she really functions like an apparition. Like, I mean, she literally is an apparition for some of the Mm -hmm. movie. Um, But like, she functions as this like shadowed figure. Like most of when you see her face is her like coming out of the shadows quickly. Um, You don't, she never even feels real. Like even in those last scenes with her um, physically with Ed and Lorraine, she doesn't even feel like she's physically there. Do you know what I mean? Like she's so spooky and haunting. It's, you know, which is, yeah. I think that's why like this movie doesn't get enough credit because it's, it's a lot of it that isn't spoken. Like Lorraine is the ultimate receiver and she is the ultimate projector. And that's why she's like an apparition. So Mm -hmm. it's like, they're, they're compliments. They're yin and yang. They're like inverse. Like we can, um, I mean, there's so much, there's so much fun stuff in this movie. And like, I think that, um, I mean, there's a lot of really great practically shot scenes, a lot of really cool moments like that I think are just like totally stunning, even from the trailer that left me yeah. like rewatching the trailer mm-hmm. um, a few times. And she does a lot of really cool work. I think the scene in the, I guess it's like a, a morgue. Um, mm-hmm. 
which is like really over the top. And if you were someone who was like not into the like running monsters, it might take you out. <laughs> to me, it was like autopsy of Jane Doe. Yeah. Scary stuff. And it's like in that moment that you're like, okay, like she is face to face with her perfect match. Yeah. And that's maybe why I didn't want her to mm. be disposed of after yeah. this movie. I think when you say it's the perfect match, like, and it's a problem I have with like a lot of superhero movies. Like you think back mm-hmm. to Batman 89, you're mm-hmm. like, Oh, Jack Nicholson as the Joker is great. We have to kill him off at the end. Oh, <sighs> Danny DeVito is so wonderful as the penguin. Let's make sure he's dead by the end of yeah. Batman returns. Yeah. Like it's a problem. Like, uh, Willem Dafoe at the end of Spider-Man. I mean, like it's not a new well, problem. You never know. Again. You never know what will happen. <laughs> oh, I can't wait. I, I mean, I love characters getting out. killed off. Like everyone, like yeah. I'm, I'm a purist. I like things that exist and then stop existing. Um, so like, I love that. I love that her character is finished, even though mm-hmm. like characters like Val, like yeah. keep coming back. I love it. But um, the difference is like, yeah. she's human after all. Like, yeah. And all is said and done, she did not live up to her bargain with the devil or the demon, you know, and it, that's what happens. Cautionary tale. True. Good point. It is a good point. Like she did lose her bargain. Um, Hear me out. Quick side diversion. What if Spider-Man No Way Home? It's a multiverse movie, as is The Flash. What if Michael Keaton, who plays the Vulture in... Okay. How about he comes back, Batman 89 in a Spider-Man movie? Mike, Do it, you cowards. Let me just tell you something. There are <laughs> not it. enough hours in this evening left remaining for me to yell my thoughts on the Spider-Man mm. Batman multiverse canon in this moment. Yes. Like, you, I wish I could tell you that it's something I could deliver for you quickly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are not, there is yeah. not time. I have been obsessing is... over the Sony Marvel mm-hmm. deal for literal years now Mm -hmm. and every time there's like a little hint of like michael keaton in the morbius trailer i just like walk around in circles going i told you Mm -hmm. i told you i told you to no one (laughs) to like nobody no one's there my reaction to this new spider-man trailer um was first of all i cried three times in a row and then uh did a bunch of like i told you so's to myself to your dog yeah Cause oh. I told you and wait, everyone's like, Oh, the Sinister Six is going to be in the MCU. You're out of your minds. You are incorrect. I have the crazy pin board with notes and post-its to prove it, but we need to there. We won't go there. Yes. But the reason why that uh, comes to mind is because, like I said, I do like characters that die. like when they end, because I think that things are better when they're mm-hmm. over. I think, part of the magic of Jack Nicholson's Joker is that Jack Nicholson's Joker existed once. Um, and I very much believe that. And I'm such a purist that said, uh, when Almelina showed up in the end of that Spider-Man trailer, it was the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me. And the first sliver of joy <laughs> I felt in two years. So <laughs> Maybe dramatic. Um, that's so dramatic. Right. I just want to hug you now. Don't, don't let that be true. <laughs> you say Peter. Oh God. Um, it's a lot. It's so, a lot for my so, and Lindsay, whenever you say like, I don't have enough time for, that is always your kind way of like, let's keep this on track. Yeah. That is your nice way of telling like, Hey Mike, rein it in. Um, no, so, it's me knowing myself truly, but yes. So okay. let's yeah. talk about the, uh, cause you are both impressed by the visual style of this movie, like what it brought to the table. So talk a little bit about, 
because I feel like it's stylistically different from the first two movies. It steps outside of that box. Um, so tell me what you both appreciate about. So much. Um, so Great. Much. All right. Moving Thank on from there. So <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Um, <laughs> I think what I really love about this is the scares are the same, but different. And I think that you can feel Juan's DNA. You can, this feels like a conjuring movie to me. You can feel the scare um, crafting from him and you can feel it. Um, Mm -hmm. But it also right away tells you like James Wan did not direct this movie. And I think the first time you really, really feel that is in the scene where Arnie kills the landlord and everything turns red. And the way characters are thrown around is like, this feels like it's a James Wan type of movie, but this was not directed by James Wan. And I think that that's like where it separates itself. And then there's just so many, although the possession scene happens first. Now that I say that. Um, the possession scene happens first, but I feel like that was the moment that made me feel like this is a different director's movie. This Um, movie starts big and the conjuring movies usually start a bit quieter. Yes. Um, This movie. I feel like it's always an intro to like a spinoff character Mm -hmm. or like a totally different scare, like a cold open about Annabelle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, this one opens on the, uh, possession. What I think is really cool and is a really cool switch that this movie does that if I was given more time, I could probably come up with examples is the story feels like the first few minutes is the end of a story, yeah, which is like so cool. And it feels like, oh, okay. They exercised the demon from this child party's over. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously that was just the beginning, which I think is really cool, but um, I don't, I've got to be other examples. It's of that like one. the beginning of all the Rocky sequels, where what you're doing is you're showing the last few minutes of the previous Rocky to bring people back up to speed. It's like it's almost like a whole other movie was filmed. Like there's a secret somewhere out there. There exists like a 90 minute version of that possession story, and this is the last 10 to 15 minutes of it, and then you're going into this new movie. Which is great because when you think about the formula, like that is the best way to to announce that this is not going to be what you expect Mm. because you have haunted house movies. You can guarantee that they're going to start with like this cold open. You know, the first one was Annabelle. The second one was the Amityville house. And then you end your grand finale with the big exorcism scene. Mm -hmm. This one starts with an exorcism. It doesn't end with an exorcism because that's like really between, um, you know, the occultist and the Warrens trying to break a curse, Mm -hmm. a curse. That's the thing of this movie, which is great. So you have this amazing cold open that's really like a a climax in itself. And I think Jobs called it like exorcist 2.5 or something or Mm -hmm. conjuring 2.5. But I also want like to, to your original question about the visual style I think that a lot of people, we've become so saturated with VFX that we no longer have the ability to tell that practical effects are involved. And so you've got Julian Hilliard's face composited on an actual stunt double, Mm -hmm. a 14 year old girl who is a contortionist. That's all that she's doing on the table with the bending. That's a physical actress doing Mm. that. That's physical. Uh, It just looks weird because you've got a, a, composited face on it so like and it should look weird because bodies don't bend like that usually right but it's like that's the thing is like there was no speeding it up he thought about doing it at at a different speed but no that's like that's real time 
It's just the only VFX really is the composited face. Mm -hmm. So like nothing about the opening and, you know, a lot of the criticisms are like so much, so much VFX, so much VFX. And really like there's VFX enhancements, but a lot of what Chavs did is very practical throughout the Mm -hmm. entire movie. The whole, like there are moments just keeping on this scene before I gush about further moments. Um, in that scene, you have the, I believe it's the actress, the contortionist who does it, but the kid, little David, uh, jumps and attacks, um, Ed Warren. And it's like a really stunning scene. And, um, they posted, um, Michael, is it Chavez? Uh, Chavez? Chavez. Oh, I've been saying Chavez. That's so funny. It's it's Eugenie Bondurant instead of Eugenie and Michael Chavez. Yeah. Chavez. Oh my goodness. I will say that one of the reviews we got of the show was like the host me mispronounces words a lot um <laughs> and took off yeah. two stars so i am very guilty uh, i am that. too all the time and i wouldn't have known if i didn't spend so much time like, talking to these people mm. in this movie because i am super bad at names yeah. i'm only laughing like his name structure is similar to my own which gets yeah. mispronounced very often so i'm like oh it actually is shops because when people ask my name travs i'm like what do you like how could you think that um so there you go <laughs> Um, I will eat it because of Shaz. So what Shaz does that is so cool. Um, so he posted last night on his Twitter a lot of like behind the scenes stuff, which is definitely worth looking up. And he's at Michael Shaz, uh, C-H-A-V-E-S, um, which again, just felt like spelling my own name. And um, he, uh, yeah, he posted this like, you know, I don't know what he recorded it on, but this like backed up appearance of them shooting that scene where they're like the lights above them are flickering. So he's using lights that wasn't added post the lights. Above, like it's a shot with his cell phone potentially that looks well, no, probably like with like a professional camera, but that looks exactly the same as the movie. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it, it, there wasn't anything else added to it, but yeah. So you've got this like stellar shot of this kid, like flying through the air and landing on Patrick Wilson, who gets, like, chucked backwards. And Patrick Wilson's a big dude. And it is, like, yeah. it's so cool. And I was, like, that, like, and I think I said aloud that was practical. And then all the comments were, like, all caps, that was practical. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. So cool. Yeah. But the other practical shot that when I read that last night, I was, like, oh, my God. So Lorraine hangs out with the police for a bit. She has her little uh, charm totem situation and she goes hunting for the scene the site where um the uh the lover has died previously and she has this like moment in the woods and it's daytime and it basically goes from day to night and there's this like really striking shot of light through the trees just like wrapping around her as if time moves really rapidly and he shared last night that that was a practical shot they shot it at night with lights it's not a vfx shot Mm. yeah stunt coordinators like you know the the cliff scene that these are all practical things and the, you know it's like you see just a veneer of vfx and just assume it's all mm-hmm. vfx i think right. that also is the mcu effect is yeah that for sure we and know like there's a videos scene. of like csi yeah. not being mm-hmm. you know it's funny so the cliff scene that's what i meant like the part of the trailer i kept re-watching because it's so stunning the way the light changes but also Vera is, I mean, she's amazing. I can, I love her so much. The way she is running and then the way she stops her body. And it's like such a, like, I watched it so many times. I was like, gosh, she just crushes this like 
frantic putting on the brakes where she has to throw her whole body from her knees to her like she like has to like squat and thrust herself in every direction to kind of like stop her like inertia and momentum to like freeze in a way that looks so cool and so real and so impossible yet so like real and impossible and then immediately turns on the emotional like ed like she just says ed like help me basically Mm -hmm. i was like how did they do that? <laughs> like, I watched it a hundred times. And then when it was in the movie, I was still like, how How did she do that? How did they shoot that? How did they light that? I don't, it's just movie magic. Yeah. So magic. I definitely agree with your point that it feels like it is a distinct, it's a distinctive style apart from James Wan's style. Um, and I think there are a couple of moments at work. I, I, and maybe because this moment most closely mimics the first movies, it's probably my favorite in the movie, is when uh, Arnie Johnson is like goes into the kitchen to get like the lemonade or whatever. And it's kind of this extended, like you hear things that aren't really there. And then like the cereal box falls over on its own. Uh, and then you have like the jump scare at the end. Like that is the moment that I liked more than any other in the movie, even though it's a little bit too boogity boogity at the end of it. Like I really enjoyed that. Um, I think that's, it felt too dark to me at times, like especially we talk about like the John Noble, like the priests, like he has the kind of um, a similar room to what the Warrens have and that they're both collecting the cursed artifacts one of the things I really like about the way the Conjuring movies have been shot is when you go in that room, you see everything and it makes you kind of want to look around and find things. And like, I want to know the history behind all of these things. And it gives you like, I wonder what the story behind that is. I found myself too often, maybe like not being able to pick out detail in something that, Obviously, there had been like an exquisite amount of work put behind it. I just felt it wasn't shown off in a way that could best show it off. Am I wrong? I mean, it could be just my no, eyes. No, no, I'm, no, I don't think you're wrong. I'm just, I'm like literally reflecting. I'm like, huh. I mean, I think it's just a darker palette. And I guess I didn't really want to because okay. it's not meant to be an inviting play. I mean, mm-hmm. there's something that's so kind of wholesome about the movie versions of the Warrens that it's mm-hmm. like, even when you see Annabelle comes home, there's a very playful quality, even yes. though there's like demonic, whereas this is literally demonic and mm-hmm. you are not meant to want to be invited into that space, you know? And I think that also starts with Lorraine getting super bad heebie-jeebies before she even goes down there. She's like, Ed, I don't want to. And That's I fair. Think that the look is supposed to mimic that. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say it's the same production designer, Jennifer Spence, who is amazing mm-hmm. and does put exquisite detail yeah. into everything and even thinks about future iterations, you know, like in, uh, I think it was probably Conjuring or Annabelle Comes Home. Like there's a whole crawl space that she's added that didn't have anything to do with anything. She mm-hmm. just thought in a future, uh, the, she's just thinking ahead where it's like, hey, you know, 
you're in a house, how do we make that functional and build upon? If I put a crawl mm-hmm. space, people will naturally think about it and then we can maybe use that in a future mm-hmm. entry. So yeah, she's okay. she's brilliant. There's nothing that's changed there. I think that it's just the, the nature of the space itself is that you're not yeah. really meant to want to look. That's a fair point. I think that's a fair rebuttal of that where you're saying that like, hint at it but you're not meant to want to spend a lot of time there there is supposed to be something that is illicit and taboo about it compared to the warrens that are your like you said wholesome the depiction of them is yes they cleans these you know and for again for like five bucks you could tour their museum and i strongly believe that the real Warrens had like 20 of those Raggedy Ann dolls in the home. I would pay to and, see it even if I knew it was a fake one. I went to see or, the fake Stanley Cup. Like, doesn't mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm still going to do it. Yeah. You're like, this is the real Annabelle. Like, uh, it has a Marshall's price tag on it. From, <laughs> oh, like, can you put it in the glass box? I went to, um, for uh, Annabelle Comes Home, I went to the, uh, I was a plus one for the press screening. Mm-hmm. Which I think I've like told the story before. Yeah, that the, That's okay. That it was Laura who uh, she hadn't seen any of the movies and she was reviewing mm. it and I was like oh my god and so I was like quickly explaining canon to her and it's just like nothing made me sound more out of my mind than when I was like yeah so technically this is a sequel I was like this is a prequel but it's also a sequel to the spinoff and she was like sure Lindsay um, <laughs> but they had and I was like elated I was so thrilled and they had in the theater lobby the um like a glass case with the Annabelle doll. And it was just like, take my picture, take my picture. <laughs> like um, at every, like five, like before and after the movie. Just didn't case, you so. punch like an Annabelle doll? I like, yell, didn't you I, like yell, yeah. Nope, I like, and just made him cry? <laughs> no. Didn't you like bring a child to tears at an yeah, Annabelle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I yelled at the kid. No, I uh, had the wrong reaction to a real, well, to a human dressed as Annabelle. so okay so if you've listened i went i don't know i know i told this i just i don't know what episode i told it on but i feel like it was the first conjuring it was probably the first conjuring but the like really long story short was basically that there was this like photo opportunity at fan expo with an annabelle doll and it was this big annabelle doll and like every 50 people they would reveal that it was actually like a guy dressed as annabelle that would like jump out at you but it would be long enough between people that you would just think it was a doll and not a real person and so, of course, they chose me to jump out at, and my reaction was to put my hand in his face and say, nah, bitch, no way. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> there's, like, the photo of me, which, yeah, we definitely mentioned, I think, in the first episode, because I feel like I posted the picture of, like, me with my we hand did. in Annabelle's you face. Did. And I was like, that seems like a good defense That's mechanism at the amazing. time. Amazing. Um, yep. <laughs> All right. Yeah, and we'll still pay money uh, so... to see Annabelle life goal is to go into mm-hmm. like a haunted attraction with Lindsay. oh my god that would be fun oh there should be a patron level for that like thousand bucks yeah. this let's halloween go. let's I'll go my um, younger sister yeah. is the best person to go to haunted attractions with because she screams the whole time to the point where you're hysterically laughing because her <laughs> react and she keeps going but like she keeps going to these things but her reactions are so over the top that it's impossible to not. And it just attracts more of them. Yeah. Because they flock to that. They're like, this is working. This is an easy mark. Yes. Uh, I love that. I love that so much. It is great. So higher patron level, like I'll bring my sister to a haunted attraction and you could follow her around. A thousand bucks. I'll buy you a ticket to Castle Loma's haunted haunted attraction. Perfect. Um, All right. 
Um, let's talk about the lovers. Let's talk about the lovers in that scene because that this seems to be sure. like one of the pieces of criticism of the movie. And some people love it, and there are some good things about that scene and how it's done. Um, my critique of it is going to be like in a movie that puts, and I'm usually not this person, but puts heteronormative Christian love above all else, um, which is fine. Like it's okay to show like a heteronormative couple that is in love with one another. But the only, to date, the only queer coded characters I can think of in this whole seven movie series, it feels like a pretty gruesome punishment. Um, And maybe that's an over the top reaction. Maybe it's like, hey, you're not meant to read it that way. You're reading too much into it. Um, But it does feel punitive to have maybe two female lovers. One kills the other and then takes a dive over a rocky cliff to her death. That it, because it's not like it's the only example of like a strange conservatism that runs throughout this whole series of movies, Um, which yes, that'll happen in part because you have like, it's a Christian horror movie with like a loving couple, but it just feels like anything outside of that box is seen as deviant. I don't think the movie, well, I mean, feel free to check me like I'm not the arbiter on this in any sense. I don't think the movie like punishes them for being gay or, you know, crosses them out because they're outside of a box. I don't get that read. I think that you can make the valid criticism that, man, you finally had queer coded characters and you killed them right away. Like you could you could criticize it for that. Um, I think that would be fair, but I don't think it like punishes them for that. I don't think there's any implication of that. I do think, and again, it's the story's not over, but in the comic, so it's 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 hinted that they might be lovers in this, and they're referred to as the lover mm-hmm. in the comic. It's like very directly that they are mm-hmm. um, two women uh, that are a couple, um, and the books have like cool like queer stickers and things on them, mm-hmm. and like rainbows, and it's very much a celebration of their relationship. So I do think you can make the argument like, oh wow, you finally have queer people and you killed them, but I do also think that. I don't think personally, like, I think that's a valid criticism, but I think from the, like, on top of that, I don't think it was, like, punishing them for that. I don't think the movie was implying that, and it is, in some sense, uh, celebrating their love story externally. When you say celebrating their, like, the comics are? Yeah, correct, yeah. But the comics exist outside of the, I'm just looking at the text of the movie, and it's hard, like, looking at the intent of, like, what Juan and company are going for versus, yeah, like... Yeah, yeah, what's Oh, yeah, I'm not saying that, like, the comics, like, clean up the mess or anything mm-hmm. like that. But I'm just saying that, like, I don't think that mm-hmm. there's any... I think if if someone wanted to claim there was an implication that they were being punished for that by the movie, I don't think that's true. Because it was immediately contemplated that they were going to be celebrated elsewhere. So mm-hmm. I don't think that, like, the movie writing is directly doing that. Is what I'm yeah. trying to say. It, intent and execution are different. So, like, intent, that's not the intent. I mean, it's the same screenwriter who wrote the comic. So, clearly, he didn't mm-hmm. intend right. that to be. You can definitely critique the execution and how it reads. But I like Lindsay. I think it was more of a, a way. It's like these two are probably not. Uh, you know, given the era, they're hiding and that's why they're in the woods at night. And mm-hmm. it's so that's more of a setup. And I thought I kind of read it as more of here's why 
this curse is such bad news, you know, cause these people technically they're already dead. They're, they're mm-hmm. finding the flashback. So like, this is kind of how they got into this particular setting. Mm-hmm. And this is why you do not want the curse at all. So yeah, I didn't really read it as, you know, egregious, but I definitely understand the critiques okay. for sure. And as a slight little trivia, um, the actress who plays Jessica in that scene is Ingrid Bisu, who also was in The Nun as Sister hmm. Oana. And I believe that's also who James Wan is married to as well. Oh, what? So, Interesting. I think I did read that he was married to someone in maybe The Nun. I remember hearing something about his wife. And I was like, wait, which one's his wife? Um, mm-hmm. And then I obviously didn't follow through and look it up. because. And then I'll drop more. Little off uh, casting news. The sure. dad, Papa Glatzel, in the opening, the one who gets stabbed, that's Patrick Wilson's brother. What? Paul All in the family. He, he participated last night as well. I missed that completely. There's another Wilson? There is another Wilson. And he was the, uh, the dad to the little boy in the movie in the opening. Oh. That's cool. So- Leaving like that critique aside, how does it work as a set piece? Because I feel like this is the similar, like it's a, at a similar point in the movie where you get like the clap scene in the first movie. And I think like the uh, little girl staying home from school, like where did my road, like the, I don't know why ghosts hate remote controls so much in these movies, but they do. Um, how does this like whole scene, like Lorraine, kind of like tapping into the energy of that and then the morgue i do like him breaking into the morgue being like ah, oh, they'll send us the bill um how does this work as like a dramatic mid-movie set piece and i think it kicks ass like i already yeah it's like that whole bit uh, like i was saying before about like the whole apparition the whole morgue scene yeah i think it's dope i love That's- it <laughs> That, yeah, I do too. I mean, there was no way that they were going to get away with changing directors and trying to do the same formula. Totally. I tend to be a sucker for like road trip type mm-hmm. horror movies to begin with. So to leave the confines of spooky houses, admittedly, I love the houses, but to like, they're literally on a road, they're on an adventure. They go mm-hmm. from this crazy flashback sequence in the woods with the dam and it's like life or death. She nearly dies. That's exciting. And then you meet like John Chicken Shit Noble and that's crazy in this whole other, you know, artifact room. And then you're going to the morgue and I just love how it's like, this is an X-Files adventure, the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. for me, it's, it's a blast. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think we did it, folks. I think so. I think we've hit on everything I wanted to touch on on this. How about you both? Yeah, for me. Do you want to touch on Lost Demon or nah? Oh, yeah. We skipped Lost Demon when we talked about it. We we don't have to. (laughs) No, let's jam it in there quickly. I meant when we were talking about um, the reshoots, I like had that in my head and then blew it. Um, Yeah, so... Yeah, last thing is when we were talking about reshoots, um, we mentioned that they changed uh, a couple rule, a couple roles, and that there was a lost demon. But yes, Meg, fill us in on what we missed. Uh, well, like you said earlier, they they cut that because I guess it got a little too complicated to have a secondary antagonist. You can see him; he is the entity in the waterbed. Um, so that did not get cut. Um, 
but yeah, Michael Schaub's released a video. So I guess there was a scene in the um, prison that this demon was taunting him. And the demon was called Beast, played by Davis Osborne. Mm-hmm. And it's really creepy. Super creepy. I'm kind of sad. Like, the occultist is so well on her own, but I also want to see this alternate cut where they had him. So instead, he's he's like a patient who's singing Blondie is a nice callback. But yeah, you can see, like, if you just look uh, hashtag Lost Demon on Twitter, you can find a lot of the the pictures, the behind-the-scenes pictures mm-hmm. of, of him and, and the video. So Excellent. yeah. Excellent. Well, we're wrapping up the Conjuring series for now, but... It does feel like this is going to be a franchise that we're going to be returning to again in the ensuing years. Like it feels like there's at least two more spinoff movies lined up as far as we know. And given that this, you know, costs like a relatively low $39 million to make. I mean, you figure a lot of that is going to Fermiga and Wilson at this point. Um, and that's not a ton of money to make a movie anymore. And even admits like the pandemic right now, it made $200 million worldwide. And it had an interesting release strategy in that like, you could be like me and if you have HBO Max, like you're like, I can watch this at home as many times as I want for a month and not spend $15 at a theater for a ticket. This still did phenomenally well. And it's interesting that like, I felt like this in a quiet place too, were the first two movies coming out of like the darkest days of the pandemic when we thought we would get closer to normal. <laughs> Whoops. Um, then it was like, these are the, like those two movies were like, okay, this is what's going to get people back into theaters. And they did. I mean, by and large, like did a hell of a job of it. All things considered. Well, if you want to experience joy, watch the Spider-Man trailer. And... Do it. <laughs> Yes, do that. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, Meg, what are you cooking up over at Bloody Disgusting? What is this? What is your new role there? Ah, uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think we're still kind of figuring that out. Um, sure. Basically, let's bring John and Brad in right now. Let's yeah, let's in. let's ring them. What am I doing? No, I for sure do uh, a weekly newsletter that goes out every Thursday uh, called The Rewind, where it's like exclusive essays. Uh, a lot of them by me, but I am roping in people too. Um, and I just uh, head critic, obviously, all of the major releases I cover and just churning out a lot more of uh, the content I already have been and I'm just at a more full time capacity and, you know, occasionally hosting Twitter watch parties. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What would you say are and you're also you're still doing the bloody disgusting podcast? Yep. Boy. Every week. For our listeners who haven't heard that, give us give us a quick rundown of what they can what our listeners can hear every week with you and Zena. Well, we figured that there are already so many wonderful podcasts like yours where you analyze movies. We are kind of more of like, you know, we deliver pizza in 30 minutes or less. You want mm-hmm. the quick, uh, you know, rundown of the new releases in the news and what we've been watching. And it's like an hour or less. That's what we do weekly. So we're just more, you know, fun. Keep you up to date. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. And where can our listeners find you on socials if they want to follow you or they want to follow what you have going over at Bloody Disgusting? Where should they go? 
I uh, I feel really arrogant asking that, by the way, because we're this like small, independent. Like, where can they find the largest? Yeah, yeah. No, I feel uh, like this is one of those moments where, like, it's the stock question to ask. But I'm like, yeah. my God, how arrogant! No, I mean, obviously, you can go to the website, or if you just want to follow me specifically, I'm at Haunted Meg on Twitter and Instagram. Although I don't really post on Instagram much, um, and then at Be Disgusting Pod for the podcast, yeah. if you're curious. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank talking you about your so looks. Much. I feel like this conversation was so much better having both of you like really love and appreciate this movie. Because again, like, is I enjoyed the 90 minutes we spent talking about this movie and going, oh, that actually is a really cool point. Even if I'm not fully on board with the movie, yeah, I like talking to people about what they really enjoy. Absolutely. Um, yes, again, in 2021, it is okay to not be the turd in the punch bowl. Um, on every, you know, so that's, that's my mantra at this point. Um, so just name your franchise and what you want to come back on for, and it's an open invite. Yeah, you are always so. invited. Like, oh. We got Sound Saw right. in 2021. Um, and then I think I got to pick a couple because I'm like, I'm worried about how I'm going to get through 10 Saw movies. We don't, I mean, much. I never said we had to do Saw. I, I just said I, that I, if I you want to do it, I will do it. I, I think if it would you be are fun. going to do it, I think that Lindsay would be the only person yes. you could get through it with. I am looking forward, again, I'm looking forward to it because I like, will do the, the heavy lifting on Saw. Yes. So I'll be able to take half a year off. She's basically. got a whole garage full of like Traps. maps and everything evidence and like the, the threads and traps yes all of it's that true. she's got all of it it's true so, yeah you think that you clock something when you were like hey wait a second is that an annabelle connection wait till you see my saw room no mm-hmm. just joking um well we did it folks i feel good about it great mm-hmm. episode um i hope all of you had fun because mm-hmm. i know i did all of you listeners yeah um what do you and coming yeah up we uh i think we're still yeah you have an exciting thing coming up next I will I not be here for the next episode, That's but right. Mike is going to do something that I think he is the best person to do. I'm actually disappointed to be missing it. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you want to tell them? So let's talk a little bit about what's going on. So we just wrapped up a franchise, and when this comes out, there's that nebulous, like, two episodes before we get into October. So October, we're going to break the format a little bit. bit. We're going to go back to weekly, but we're going to do, like, shorter, like, 60-minute shows and bring on guests to talk about like, hey, here is like, if you want to find a bunch of like found footage movies to watch this Halloween, here's what you should watch. Uh, we'll probably get Halloween Kills in there to kind of review and talk about that movie. But by and large, I think it's going to be shorter episodes, like stuff to get ready for the spooky season. So in September, we're going to do two one-offs. We have to pick the second one because I forgot there were three Mondays in uh, August and like we actually have two shows to do in between now and uh, whatever next show we're going to talk about my all-time favorite movie we are going to talk about the movie that we rented a theater for for my 40th birthday we're going to talk about the movie where the director called me a moron because I forgot I left the DVD in the car to get it signed in a fango he said it in a kind gentle way uh, it was not meant to be an insult he's like oh you moron um we are going to talk about the movie that is about 50% of the reason I am married to a British woman. We are going to talk about, and I am not getting, I will get into this on the show. I've gotten into it on psychoanalysis a little bit, and I think I made Jen and Laura very upset. 
when I put it the way I did. Um, we're going to talk about American Werewolf in London. It's a one-off because American Werewolf in Paris doesn't exist, so it's no franchise. Never heard of it. We are talking about John Landis's American Werewolf in London. It's my all-time favorite movie. Uh, we're going to be joined by Jessica Scott and Gina Radcliffe, who is from the Kill by Kill podcast. Um, I will apologize to both ladies in advance because I feel like I could just do this one solo. Um, oh, I was like, why? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> feel like if they allow me to to just listeners slap on the feedback kick back because it's going to be a long one it is going to be a it's going to be a long episode of me just gushing over this movie um so i'm really excited we got to pick another movie for september but yeah up next we have america world for london so Follow us over on Twitter at Pod and Pendulum over on Twitter. Join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash pod and the pendulum. One easy thing you can do, go ahead, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, but iTunes is still the biggest. Five-star review in a few words. Um, it goes a real long way to new listeners finding our show. It helps us get new listeners. It helps us get new downloads. I always know when we get a new review because like the next day, there's like a pretty dramatic increase in listeners. Um, it's a free way that you can help our show continue to grow. If you're like free is good, but I really want to give you guys some money because we I love you so much and I have this money burning a hole in my pocket. Go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pod and the pendulum. Sign up to become a member today. Bonus episode every month. We just went deep on mom and dad with Petros from the Caged In podcast talking about Nick Cage and Selma Blair. We give you our staff picks and recommendations every month. Once we get to $150 a month and we're about two-thirds of the way there, um, we're going to be adding reviews. So uh, once or twice a month, like Lindsay, will be adding quick reviews of what is the latest and greatest in the horror world. Once we hit that tier, we'll figure something else to give you. Um, your contributions fund the show. It helps us pay for the server, helps us pay for research materials, equipment, editing, yada, yada. Patreon.com slash pod the pendulum. That's all I'll say about it. Little spiel. Have a lovely week. We'll be back in a couple with, again... I can't, I, just, I can't wait. I'm going to go rewatch it right now. So, all right.